In today's episode, we will be diving into I Want to Know What Love Is by Foreigner. We're going to look at Lou Graham's impeccable vocal. We're also going to talk percentages, primal groans, and poetic devices. Also, how much does it actually cost to hire a gospel choir? Thank you for joining us here at Bill and Frank's Guilt-Free Pleasures. Coming into this episode, I was super excited about the song, but also about the subtitle I had for this episode, which is Gospel Choir for Hire. And I've been so proud of myself for the last month, month and a half, that I've just had this sort of grin on my face knowing that I'll be typing this in when we publish this episode. I I like to point out that Bill was so excited about it that he was just started researching hiring gospel choirs like 30 seconds before we started this episode. Yeah. That's how excited he was. We actually asked Google. Yeah. Google wasn't too terribly helpful. No, but it sounds like it costs a few thousand dollars currently to hire a gospel choir. But back in 84, when this song came out, 84 or 85? 84. 84. uh, When I Want to Know What Love Is by Foreigner came out, Probably a little less expensive. Yes. This song was brought forward to us by our good friend Bruce Soderholm, who you would have met before if you've been working through our episodes. He was on our Jeff Healy episode on Angel Eyes. So Bruce brought the Jeff Healy song to us, and then today's song he also brought forward. Bruce, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you very much. It's genuinely a pleasure to be back in orbit with you guys, and it's always fun to have another chance to uh, have these discussions. I will say for the record that uh, you continue to be a good company as I go for walks, and um, I'm interacting with your podcast. And the nice thing about today is that uh, I'm anticipating being able to, uh, you know, have feedback directly. You know, there's all sorts of things I think about when I listen to your pod. <laughs> that I want to say, and, you know, I'm speaking it out loud, but uh, nobody's hearing it. So, here I am. So, Bruce was in high school about, would you say, a generation before us? Does that sound right? Well, you were my high school teacher, so... (laughs) So, a decade before us, anyway. Decade before. We were in high school together, but in a sort of different way. Yeah. So, Bruce got to experience Foreigner differently than we did. I mean, it's certainly true that the songs that you hear in your formative years, adolescence, high school, um, they do create a deeper impression. Um, I think your podcast is proof of that. So when I first heard Feels Like the First Time, probably 1977, something like that, it was pretty big pretty quickly. And then it followed up quickly with Cold as Ice and and then it just seemed foreigner had arrived and that you know you couldn't listen to the radio and hear a classic rock song rendition uh, on any radio format without you know pretty quickly coming across a foreigner song and i mean their success as a commercial classic rock group i think is pretty well documented but i heard somebody say that their first 5 albums all hit the Billboard top five. Oh, wow. So, I mean, you talk about a sophomore slump or you had to wait till you get to the third album. Like, none of that. They were hitting the ground running and just ran with it very successfully. Did you ever find that Foreigner was a band of contradiction, considering two of their biggest hits are Cold as Ice and Hot-Blooded? <laughs> 
Speaking of philosophy, I'm now going to talk about Plato. Sort of. <laughs> One of our favorite writers, Tom Bryhand, who writes for the Stereogum magazine, or is it just an online magazine? Well, it's, it's something. It exists in yeah. some form. He referred to them as the platonic ideal of the band you hear all the time on the radio because you never bother to change the station when one of their songs comes on. Basically, he was saying this is not one of his favorite bands, but he'll never turn the station. It's a familiar band. Because I remember, like, speaking back in high school, I, I bought their greatest hits. It was based on the strength of Cold as Ice and, and, uh, and Hot Blood, and that's it. Listening to it, you recognize and were familiar with every single song on that album. Yeah, that first collection of, of hits called Records, I think, was the yeah. title of the album. I mean, from my perspective, you know, sometimes you see greatest hits packages and you think, okay, this has been embellished, you know. This was, uh, this was big in Japan on their third tour. But you look through every song title there and you recognize those titles, at least I do, and thought... Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. There's another one. There's another one. Like, incredible the amount of success they had in commercial play. Yep. Now, this song is something else, at least for me. I mean, I hear the songs like, oh, yeah, that's good. But when we come to something like this, this truly is a mountain to climb as far as a guilt-free pleasure goes. This is like a classic power ballad song. Yeah. So, when we talk about Foreigner today... I mean, I know there's a big history to Foreigner, yep. but really, we're going to be focusing on Mick Jones and Lou Graham, because I think that was what was left over by the time this comes out. And just kind of looking at who's currently in the lineup of Foreigner, there's Mick Jones from 1976 to present, and then it's like 2005, 2011, 2012. I'm like, okay, it's Mick Jones' band. Yep. There was a whole beginning. That's pretty fascinating, too. I know I, I read a bit about it, but he f ended up firing most of those guys by the time this album comes out, which is Agent Provocateur. Agent Provocateur. Yeah. Gotcha. Agent Provocateur, if you're going to do the French inflection. Which is also a lingerie line. <laughs> if not, you'll find it in our merch store. Hey, merch. <laughs> our foreigner lingerie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, Mick decided he wanted to tighten up the reins on the band after starting with six members. He boiled it down to four after a couple albums. I think Dennis Elliott was still playing drums. Rick Wills was uh, the bass player that was uh, recruited. And uh, then it was uh, Mick and Lou who were kind of the core four. And then they supplemented with a bunch of other guys, you know, moving forward through the 80s. Yeah. And so we have Mick Jones and Lou Graham being the sort of creative forces, possibly. And it comes to a head with this song. So you got an issue where this is a, another power ballad, which is how Lou Graham would post it. They've already had a big power ballad. Yep. The biggest number two in Billboard history, I think, in terms of longest running. What's it called? It's... I've been waiting for a girl like you. Oh, yeah. Ten weeks, I think. Ten weeks. At number two. And then um, Lou Graham was uncertain about this one, but... I mean, this is the one, because it goes to number one. Yeah. But there's a back history here where Mick Jones originally writes a song at his piano at home while he's preparing to get married to Anne Dexter Ronson, formerly Ronson. She was uh, married before her mm -hmm. son, Mark Ronson, who oh, yeah, some of right. you might know about. He's a massive producer today, right? Yeah. yeah. So um, Mick Jones ended up being a stepfather when he was seven years old. So mm -hmm. just before their marriage, he's writing this song at the piano. And she says to him, hey, what are you doing writing this song? We're getting married in a few weeks. I'm still laughing at, at the idea that Mick Jones became a stepfather at seven years old. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 I guess, Incredible I guess guy. She, she, would, she would have a little bit of a, there'd be a little trepidation if he's Asking if he wants to know what love is, you know, a couple of weeks before the marriage, right? It actually brings to mind, uh, you know, Prince Charles and Diana, famously his quote, well, are we in love? Well, perhaps whatever that means. <laughs> <laughs> That's a song waiting to be written. Yeah. yeah. 
So, um, side note, Mick Jones did get married, and they were happily married for many years. They made it to 25, then got divorced, but got remarried again uh, five years ago. Oh, did they? Yeah. Oh, cool. Nice. So, they didn't know what love was. Now they know what love is. Yeah. Again. Again. She also said, it's tangential, but we'll find our way back, mm-hmm. that it fits like an old shoe, but it just needed a new insole. This just didn't feel as romantic as this song. Yeah, no. Now, Mick Jones, of course, credited as a sole songwriter, but not everyone agrees with this. Yeah, there's a bit of a... A bit of uh, alternative opinions on, you know, the contributions made respectively by Lou versus Mick. What I read was they were coming up with what was the ratio of, of songwriters. So, I mean, obviously for royalties and all that other sort of fun stuff. And Lou's coming in thinking, you know, 65-35 between, uh, you know, Mick 65, him 35. And he asked uh, Mick, and he was like, what do you think the split is? He's like, 95-5. And then Lou is just like, well, just take the entire song then. And he didn't even counter back. And Mick Jones was like, yep, okay, it's mine then. That 5% would be hundreds of thousands of dollars. Yeah. So I would have taken the five. Yeah. <laughs> Does it open up a really good question about what it means to write a song? What Lou Graham is arguing is that because he works so much on vocal arrangements Mm -hmm. and how he sat with them and kind of tried to figure out how this song would sound, he feels that he should be given songwriting credit. Whereas Mick Jones is saying, no, I wrote it at the piano. Here are the lyrics. Here's the melody. This is the song. Yeah. You just helped flesh it out, but it was like I did all the legwork. Now, I thought, in my view at least previous before doing this research, is I thought that's what songwriting was. Like someone gave you a song mm-hmm. and then you do what you want with it, but the person who wrote it is going to get the publishing rights. Yeah. So Lou Graham is like, no, this song wouldn't be what it is if not for the things I was doing. And he talked about even his sort of vocalizing and, and arranging this stuff. So what do you think, Frank? Do you think that's songwriting? I think it's definitely a part of it. I think it's more than 5% yeah. that what Mick was initially giving him credit for. I don't know about 35, but like, again, I wasn't there. So Bruce, you you were closer to being there than we were. What do you think? Um, when I heard an interview with Lou about this, he talked that it was a regular practice, you know, fold up a sheet of paper and then they'd compare. I mean, classic, classically, you know, um, John Lennon, Paul McCartney agreed to just pool their compositions together. Everything was going to be Lennon-McCartney. And uh, they just moved forward with that arrangement. And, you know, think about how much creativity that allowed. If John and Paul had been, you know, arguing about the split, um, who knows how many fewer <laughs> albums we might have got out of the Beatles, yeah. right? That's sort of like what we do here. We're, yeah. we're 50-50 on the zero we make. Yeah, exactly. It's something that we have agreed on that our debt's going to be shared 100%. Now, I did write on a sheet of paper what I feel we could negotiate for new terms. I'm going to pass it to you. You tell me what you think. (laughs) How does this work? That's 120%. No, no, it's 110% for me, minus 10 for you. You owe me money. money. So I owe you more debt? Yeah, in the end, you'll just pay me every time this is played. Uh, You know what? I'll let you drink at the Winchester for free. (laughs) So my my question is, when when people are negotiating for for song royalties and stuff like that, and, and the split, like, is there a rule, or is it just like industry standard, that it has to be like every 5%? What about like a 67, 33%? I assume they were always like 50-50, or if it was three, it'd be 33% each. I didn't know you could give a certain percent each. I didn't know that's how it worked, but that really opened my eyes to things. Why does it have to work in increments of five? I think if you're Mick Jones, he only counts by fives. Oh, okay. That's why all all of his songs are written in five-five time, right? (laughs) Is that a thing? (laughs) <laughs> that's great uh he was friends with dave brubeck right so yeah I, I mean it's it's completely arbitrary right because in the creative process how do you assign unit value 
right? Like if there's a big idea that absolutely takes a song over the top that wasn't there before, well, does that idea now all of a sudden, you know, put you in the 70% position? If it was maybe one chord and one pre-chorus and then half of the bridge, which you didn't know is a bridge until after you finished it. And then what would this song be without Lou Graham? This song would not... Oh, the vocals, right? Yeah. Yeah, it is him. He is the one. I mean, gospel choir, for sure. Yeah. But Lou Graham's vocals are unbelievable. It's what drives this song. It is ultimately what makes the song. This is is Lou's song. I think that uh, any collaboration that is going to have, you know, financial implications... That that stuff, if people are smart, you know, will will negotiate parameters as closely and as uh, detailed uh, as possible in order to avoid those kind of inevitable fights that are going to occur, right? I mean, in Lou's case, um, in the interview that I heard, you could tell that the thing that was hardest about this whole thing was not about, you know, whether or not he got royalties on this particular song. It was an ultimate feeling of being betrayed that he was being completely undervalued and that he had spent so much time collaborating, you know, with Mick on this, that that was, I'm sure what prompted the, we'll just take the whole thing. He, He was just reacting emotionally because he couldn't believe that he would be downsized so significantly. I'm going to say something that might be unpopular here. And I know that like Simon and Garfunkel, for instance, I know Paul Simon gets like all the credit, like he was the songwriter and everything, but you don't have Simon and Garfunkel without Garfunkel. He's an integral part of that band. If you had like Simon and I don't know, Loggins or, Simon and Messina or, or something like that. It's not the same band. I think the the popularity of the band is part Paul Simon and also part Art Garfunkel. So I think Art Garfunkel needs more credit. Also, Catch-22, great movie. He's a great actor. Bruce, I don't know if you were thinking the same thing, but as soon as Frank said Simon and Loggins, like, oh, wow, they could have done some really great stuff yeah, together. Yeah, as, as soon as I said that, I was just like, oh, no, that'd be an amazing band. Yeah, and I was like, <laughs> you know, actually, it would have gone better if Garfunkel had just stayed in acting. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> All right. Is it time? Can we tr- jump into this song? Are we going to jump in, talk the lyrics? Yeah. I mean, the opening I have written down here. Synths and drums, perfect blend of organic and synthetic material. Yeah, that makes sense. It just felt right where before you'd be like, oh, you can really, this is really synth heavy and all this, but there's something that they're doing with this mood they create that feels still current to me. Like it doesn't feel dated to me, even though it is part of its time and it brings me back to that. Yeah. But listening to it today and all week has not felt like I was listening to an old song. I found myself listening to the intro, and I mean, I'm a big film movie aficionado. And so my mind goes pretty quickly to, you know, connecting to different films. And there were two films and particular scenes in films that were evoked by by the the opening uh, synth vibe here. So one is, um, and they're both from the 80s, interestingly enough, but probably not a surprise. But one is uh, Risky Business. And there's a, there's a scene which is uh, towards the end of the film um, where, where Tom Cruise and uh, Rebecca de Mornay uh, are riding a subway train. It's, uh, it's a kind of risque f- scene, but... The soundtrack features a song called Love on a Real Train by Tangerine Dream. And it's just got that 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 synth vibe to it. And the other one that came to mind even more powerfully was Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. There's a scene at the end of the film where John Candy and uh, Steve Martin are 
having to say a goodbye and and then you see Steve Martin on a train uh, riding away and he's having a kind of uh, retrospective memory collage go through of the things that have happened in in the story in the film and the music that is playing in the background it's called power to believe by the dream academy and again it's just the same kind of melancholy very full chorded synth sound that e- evokes a kind of a hollow sadness um anyway just really really strong vibes um yeah what i really like about uh, about the song and listening to it again uh, a few times is there is that synth in that keyboard but it's kind of it's just in the background it's just under the surface it's not it's allowing Lou Graham's vocals to really drive the bus or drive the train, but everything else is just kind of the, it, it, it creates that atmosphere um, underneath and it's allowed to flow in its own sort of way, but it doesn't distract or detract from the song. And it, it just, it does create that uh, sort of ethereal dreamlike uh, feel to, to the, uh, to the song. It's really fantastic. When I look at the verses, there's like two verses. Yeah. And then choruses going on. But the chorus is what, yeah, don't bore us, get to the chorus. Yeah, but that first verse has two parts to it. Yeah. So you have that, I've got to take a little time, a little time to think things over. I better read between the lines in case I need it when I'm older. I've got to take a little time A little time to think things over I better read between the lines In case I need it when I'm older Now I have written down here for myself these are kind of like word pictures that connote a feeling understood by the pensive music. But just reading it off the page doesn't seem to work for me. We're like, uh, okay, Mick, sure. Yeah. <laughs> but when I hear Lou Graham bring that to life, yeah. it's like, yeah, oh yeah, I get it. Mm-hmm. The reason I get it is because of what he does in between saying, when I'm older, and then he starts talking about that mountain. Yeah. You know what he does there? Primal, primal groan. Yeah, I was going to say grunt, but that, no, that's not the word. But there's this sort of that gr- deep inside groan of yeah. the lovelorn, right? Yeah. Where it's just like, oh, and you just feel it. It just rushes over you in this song. It's incredible. It, it's coming from a very deep place. It comes from the loins of regret. For songwriting, I'd give him 5% just for that groan. Just for that groan. Yeah, absolutely. He should be taking that 5% back. (laughs) So then it moves to the next part. Now this mountain I must climb feels like the world upon my shoulders. Through the clouds I see love shine. It keeps me warm as life grows colder. Now this mountain I must climb feels like the world upon my shoulders. Okay, well, Bruce, well, you were my English teacher, and you taught poetry. You're one of the few teachers in our school board who actually consistently taught a poetry unit, even to grade 12s. Usually most teachers kind of gave up on it. 
but back then that was you were one of the few so um from a poetic perspective he's got a mountain he must climb that feels like the world upon his shoulders is that climbing the mountain feels like the world's on his shoulders is he under the mountain trying to lift it up i feel it's a bit of a mixed metaphor so i was thinking about this just looking at that one verse and those two lines and I kind of felt like, you know how they have the Facebook challenges, right? You know, the ice bucket challenge. I felt like somebody before Facebook put out a figurative language challenge. And the challenge was fit as many figurative language devices into two lines as you can. And don't worry about whether they really work together or not. So it's absolutely true. So the first line, this mountain I must climb. Now that's a metaphor, right? Because um, it's representing something else, challenge or whatever. But it's also a cliche. So there's two off the list right now. Um, feels like a world upon my shoulders. Well, world upon your shoulders is also another metaphor. But it's also an illusion because it's kind of like Atlas, right? Supporting the cosmos on his shoulders. But then the two metaphors are compared together with feels like. So you're actually comparing metaphors with a simile. So I think he wins the prize. Like he absolutely, you know, wins the challenge hands down. He got at least five figurative devices into two lines. I'm going to say that I didn't understand 76% of what you said. <laughs> I'm going to slip you a piece of paper and I'm going to write down a new percentage for you, Frank. <laughs> So I got to give him credit, though. They, he sticks the landing, though. Through the clouds, I see love shine. So like, okay, so love is like the sun, and it keeps me warm as life grows colder. And like, all right, Mick, you got it. So, You're you stuck right to it. So did he climb through the clouds on that mountain? That's also on his shoulders? On the top, he's able to see through the clouds. So if I was being picky, and I don't want to be, but... You know, he's using the visual description and then he's ta you talking about the different sense of feeling something. Like, it would have been nice if, it, you know, maybe you feel the love and then it's keeping you warm because you feel it. If you see it, it's not helping you feel it. But anyway, that's being a little pedantic. Well, I guess first line was a, like what metaphor? Second line, feel, feels like. Next is a metaphor. Now, I feel warm. Hey, how are you doing, Frank? I'm moving my percentage up to 81%. There's 19% there's that I understood. <laughs> okay. I like you said, don't bore us, get to the chorus. Frank, talk to us about this chorus. Well, it's not boring. <laughs> no, I do like the verses. I really do. Because it leads into that pre-chorus. And then there's all the feels, right? It's like, in my life, there's been heartache and pain. I don't know if I can face it again. Can't stop now. I've traveled so far to change this lonely life. In my life, there's been heartache and pain. I don't know if I can face it again. Can't stop now. I've traveled so far to change this lonely life. The last lines, are, okay, I'm not, I'm not exactly picking up what, what he's putting down, but the, in my life, there's been heartache and pain, and I don't know if I could, like, yeah, he's been through so much, he doesn't know if he can go through that again, because this is a song about um, being in relationships and never kind of getting there, never getting to know what love is. And just, you know, the trial and error and going through and just, you know, thinking you know what it is, but then just to be disappointed and pained uh, by the end. And you can feel that in the, the way that Lou Graham is singing it, too. He sings with emotion. And it's so hopeful, though, too, because it turns to the person. I want to know what love is. I want yeah. you to show me. Yes. And so um, I wanted to go calculus on this. This limit as X approaches something that you can't approach, which is this sort of how you'd feel in love, where it's like, I've had so much I'm heartache. I'm my percentage to 97%. <laughs> I have no idea what you guys are talking about right now. So it's like a limit where he's, he's, he's approaching it, but not getting there. But then he's doing the thing we do in calculus. It's like, okay, listen. The limit of 1 over x as x approaches infinity is zero. And we're there. I want to know what love is. We're taking it to the limit. 
one more time. <laughs> My head hurts. I want to know what love is. I want you to show me. I want to feel what love is. I know you can show me. But I think there's, it's also like, it's a song about trepidation too, because he, he's talking about like how much he's gone through and how much he doesn't want to go through all that pain again. So like the, the, I want to know what love is like, he's, he's kind of unsure about it. Cause he's just like, listen, I've been hurt before. I don't want to go through that again, but I want to know what love and I want. And so he's, he, there is a vulnerability there that he is after acknowledging all this pain and hurt that he's gone through he's saying like nope i'm throwing it back out there balls back in your court if i can mix metaphors i like the specifics there about heartache and pain because it actually fleshes out or i think makes sense of the first verse right Mm -hmm. clearly there's been some kind of impetus something that's happened that is making him pause, reevaluate, got to think about this, look for meaning and stuff like that. And and the first time you hear the song, you might be wondering, well, what is it that has brought you to this point? And then heartache and pain. Oh, now it is clear. It is about some kind of loss or feeling of being disconnected to what's what's important. Mm-hmm. Verse two. Verse two. Well, I like this. We got the kind of parallel structure, at least at the beginning, where he says, I'm going to take a little time, a little time to look around me. And another one of my favorite things, the ooh-ooh-oohs I have written down here. Go to my trusty book. How important are these? That's a rhetorical question. They're super important. (laughs) What Lou Graham did, and he did this on his own because Mick Jones was busy working with the choir, he was saying, but he was doing these vocalizations on his own. Yeah. Collecting the zero songwriting (laughs) royalties. And then he says, I've got nowhere left to hide. It looks like love has finally found me. And that's it for verses, right? Yeah. So I like the change in the parallel when he says, I've got to take a little time, but then it's, I'm going to take a little time. So it's moving from intention to deliberate action, right? So that's, that's, that's moving forward. Now it's the background vocals that are coming out in this little section that are, how would you describe them, Bill? Like the wind? Well, to me, it sounds... Like a sexy ghost. Exactly right. It is... No, it, it sounds... I, I thought, okay, what... It, it definitely has a kind of a haunting feel to it, right? But like a sexy haunting feel. Well, I thought two things. One, somebody left, you know, a leftover track from Thriller in the studio room and somebody said, hey, you know what? I can use this on this song. The other thing that I had going through my mind was I'm looking through the song credit to see if there's a coyote wrangler listed. <laughs> because it just, it sounds like there's some kind of howling going on there. And I thought that would be a great anecdote if you, all of a sudden you found out, yeah, we, you know, getting those coyotes into the studio <laughs> and to actually bay at the moon, we had to bring in a video. I mean, it's a very haunting kind of uh, background. It's haunting and there's a primal element to it. Oh, absolutely. We've already heard, <laughs> you know, Lou's inner angst being expressed. What did we call that? It was a seductive groan? Primal groan. Once the second verse ends, we just head into chorus. But, I mean, this cor- the chorus, chorus... And so on. But this chorus is very special. Yeah. Because this is the first time we hear it backing vocals. I think it's the gospel choir right away. Yeah. 
I think so too, but they're definitely mixed further back. Yes. They're definitely, you know, sotto voce kind of, kind of feel here. Frank just moved up to 99%. Yeah, honestly. <laughs> like, am I a dummy? <laughs> oh, I'm pretending to know what that means too, but I'm guessing yeah. it's uh, soft, soft voice. Soft voice. Yeah, soft, I got gotcha, it. I got yeah. it. Why don't you just say soft voice then? Because our Italian <laughs> listeners are going to love this. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, so, I mean, now that we're going into chorus time, I mean, this would come up as a category, but there's no need to ask for this as a category. How are you singing along with this ending? In all honesty, if I'm singing any part of this song, it's the opening verse. Oh, really? No. No, not at all. Do you know me? I thought I did. <laughs> I'm totally singing the chorus, and I'm singing this so loud and so obnoxious. My voice is sore at the end of uh, singing, and and some of those um those roles that they're doing with the uh, um with the chorus, like the the lines that are in parentheses, and I like you. I'm just I'm hitting those as hard as I can. Bruce, when you sing along with this, are you singing? You're a harmonizer. I think. If I, if I, am I right? So are you singing gospel choir? Or are you going loose singing along with the gospel choir? Or are you making new harmonies with all of them? I want to do it all at the same time. And it's really <laughs> hard. Because, I mean, it is such a strong, strong melody that you just want to belt it out because it deserves to be given, you know, turn it up to 11 in spinal tap mode, yeah. right? But at the same time that's true i do when i when i'm hearing songs on the radio i will often try and you know fashion a harmony part and sing along with kind of the background vocal too um so maybe i listen to it a few times in a row and you know just alternate where does bonnie stand on this does she ever tell you to stop um I don't think she heard me fully uh, wailing on this one, but uh, she generally gives me props if if she hears me, uh, you know, doing some harmonies. I mean, I, I grew up, you know, with the dad as a choir director, and I sang in choirs myself. And uh, I mean, I'm not making any claims of being a great vocalist, but but I enjoy the experience of harmony and being in a kind of choral setting. I enjoy it as well, but I also feel that I might know myself well enough that I wait till no one's in the car, just so <laughs> I can fully explore the space and take those chances that a man ought not to take. I try to go super low and then super high. Well, yeah, you want to experience the entire song, like the whole vocal palette of it. Yeah. Percentages. I keep going back. This is so great to me. I can't stop thinking about it, but... All right, so we got this song. Mm -hmm. So we got, let's let's pretend Mick Jones wrote most of this song anyways. We were saying, though, without Lou Grand's vocals, this song just doesn't cut it. No. However, without the gospel choir, where would this song land? It's so tough, like, because Lou Grand's vocals are, are really good, but that gospel choir, it just brings it right home. Um. You gotta you gotta give the gospel choir minimum twenty percent. Okay, I'm gonna say twenty two percent. Perfect. The addition of uh, the gospel choir creates new math. I mean, the whole greater than the sum of its parts. It absolutely creates a dynamic that allows for so many things happening in the song. Um, did Did you hear discussion about how that choir thing happened um because as i recall you know mick was was in a meeting with another record executive and somebody walked in who you know had a a kind of a gospel label and he heard the song and said oh that's good but you know what you can do more with this and he was the one who recommended you know bring in a choir and he had on the label the the New Jersey Mass Choir and uh, he basically you know facilitated you know putting those two things together and this was apparently their first time 
doing a pop song anyways, but might have been their first time in a like studio setting like this. And so one of the stories, it's hard to tell what's apocryphal, because I've noticed even reading Lou Graham's autobiography, because I read a little bit about this week, he changed his percentages in interviews. Originally, oh, he said okay. 60-40, but he changed it to 65-35 in recent interviews. I'm like, yeah. okay, Lou. So the New Jersey Mass Choir, this is the choir that is on there. They actually released their own version of this song. I was going to say, yeah. It was really good. Mm-hmm. So it came out in 1985. So, but around the same time that this was kind of peaking, it yeah. was released and they had, I think his name's Donald Malloy. I think that's his name or Donnie Malloy. It's Donnie Malloy. I just know on YouTube, they're like, the Donnie Malloy? And like, yeah, oh, I don't know who Donnie Malloy is, but these people love him. So I have a feeling that they had some gospel um, greats moving in there. I want to know. I mean, this will come up, I'm sure, but uh, they recruited Jennifer Holliday um, to be performing with the New Jersey Mass Choir in, in background vocals. Mm-hmm. And I mean, she was a big deal. She was a Broadway star from Dreamgirls and had won Tony Awards and Grammys. Um, so she sang with Michael Jackson, uh, Luther Vandross. Um there's a couple others that... Uh, yeah, there was a reference to a TV special, I think. Um, I don't know, that was hosted by Paul Simon, and it featured uh, Jennifer Holliday as well as Luther Vandross and um, just kind of the who's who of Andre Crouch was featured in there. Um, I just, when I read that, I thought, oh, is there a copy of that? I want to see that. <laughs> Because there was a live at the Apollo, or not a live, there was a Motown Salutes the Apollo. Did you see the rendition of I Want to Know What Love Is? It was led by Diana Ross. Diana Ross and Aretha was... Uh, yeah. And, and so I, I read about it, and I didn't get a chance to actually watch it, so... And so this kind of leads into versions, I guess, because that was... Uh, I, did, I do have a thing written down about versions. So this version, it was interesting because Mick Jones talked about this being a gospel song, or he talked about it being a song he wanted to give to Aretha Franklin. It became a gospel song as it got written. But watching them do it, they just couldn't let the song shine through as much as outdoing each other. So it was almost watching a competition, and they just kept passing the mic around so people could just, I'm going to do one better, I'm going to do one better, which didn't do the song justice. And so my feelings about a lot of versions of this song is that they just can't do it. Even though Luke Graham is so big in what he does vocally, but it feels so pure and honest and vulnerable. And there are other versions that can't do this. Are we talking versions now? Because I want to talk about a version, Frank. I think we're talking versions. And I know the version you want to talk about. The Mariah Carey version. Like, is there a song she hasn't covered? Man, and I don't like it. I don't think I like any of her covers. I don't think she can do this. And here's why I don't think she can do this. One is she has 
all the chops, all the talent. But because of that, she does not understand what it's like to not have love. Everyone loves Mariah Carey. In the video, she's in a baseball stadium with everyone around her worshiping her and listening to every word and nodding their heads like, yeah, I'm going to love better. I'm going to be better. Go, Mariah. You're on fire. I'm just like, it's driving me crazy. I, I just have a bone to pick on this. It's not just because she tried to take the Queen of Christmas thing, which I'm still upset about, but <laughs> she can't talk about the heartache. I know she had a bad divorce and all that stuff, but no, the the cover of the uh, single has her in the sort of um, pose that she looks totally beautiful in. Look at Lou Graham. He does not look beautiful. He looks like a guy where you're like, yeah, I believe it. He, he's probably had a rough go. Is that fair to say? I mean, I feel it's, like... It's not unfair to say. When I look at myself in the mirror, I could say, yeah. So you're more Lou Graham than I'm, Mariah Carey? <laughs> I think we're all more Lou Graham than Mariah Carey. Did you, did you feel the same way about Alvin and the Chipmunks in in their rendition? Wow, I was saying I had that saved in my back pocket. That might be one of the most horrific things done to music, was the Alvin and the Chipmunks <laughs> version. <laughs> That's a good, oh. That is well done. Well played, Mr. Soderholm. Mariah should be thankful for Alvin, Simon, and Theodore. Well, yeah, because they take the focus off her and her version. Oh, my goodness. Did you like her version, Frank? I did not like it. Um, Like, Mick Jones likes her version. So, that, that that's saying something. I have a soft spot in my heart for Mariah. I, I kind of do enjoy it. Um. Like she goes full Mariah at the end when it just has the the repeating chorus at the end. Oh man, yeah. Did you um did you listen to the Tina Arena cover? Yeah, I did. So I mean the, the part that was interesting about that was that Mick apparently wrote a little extra verse or bridge for for her version. So that was just a little twist and and interesting that way. I didn't mind her version. I mean, it doesn't really hold a candle to to the original. No, I I don't think anything really does. Yeah. Mick Jones produced that version too. Yeah. Lord, help me to be strong on this road I travel on. When I'm lost and lonely, find me. My journey's just begun, and I'm not the only one. So I want to know. I want to know. The Rock of Ages version. Uh, uh, we just experienced the video that went along with it. That uh, it almost I felt bad because it was not a good way to go into this podcast. No, having, yeah. Um, those images. It just is like I can't. It's part parody, part like attempt to destroy the integrity of this song. Yeah. Boy, did I I think I hate it. No, it was awful. Yeah. Like, it was. It was so ridiculous. It does a disservice to the song, yeah. for sure. I better read between the lines In case I need it when I'm older I need to play to sorbet. Yeah. 
You're familiar with the phrase, it don't mean a thing if it ain't got that swing? Yes. You can finish this for me. For this song, it ain't worth a damn if it ain't got... Lou Graham. Thank you. Oh, that's nicely done. It's all about Lou Graham. Yeah, exactly. Well, here's something I wanted to to point out about Lou Graham's vocal on this. Having a choir and a spectacularly good choir, like the New Jersey Mass Choir demonstrates in this, um, I was trying to think of, a, of an analogy of what, what what's it like to be a singer when you've got this kind of backing vocal behind you. And I, I, I arrived on a, a basketball <laughs> metaphor or simile. I kind of feel like it's if you're if you're defending, you know, really good players coming at you and you have to be the defender, you have a freedom to attack you know, the uh, the person who's bringing the ball up the court. If you've got like a Rudy Gobert and a Victor Wembanyama who are rim protectors behind you, it just gives you that freedom to, to do whatever. And I feel like if I'm Lou Graham in that situation, um, there's a freedom to, to riff, just to, to explore uh, a note, to, to repeat a phrase with, with no fear uh, because whatever you sing or do, it's just going to sound great in the context of that choir singing behind you. I get that. And obviously, I don't have the same chops as a Lou Graham. But I think I would be intimidated. Having that great vocal power behind you, and here you are trying to lead them out, and just like, there's a lot of pressure on me to, to keep up. And not get trampled, and he does it though. I mean, oh, yeah, is incredible. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think I think, like I said, he's a he's probably a much more confident man than I am. I feel like when we go to Rochester, I want to ask if they have like a statue of Lou Graham, like they do of Rocky Balboa in Philadelphia. Yeah, they should. Yeah, for this performance. Yes, absolutely. Here, here. The music video. The Tom Bryan article did a pretty good job of sort of summarizing this. Mm-hmm. This is a band that is not MTV ready-made. No. Right? They don't look like it, but they write music that is so good, you just need to do the right thing with the video. And the video does the right thing because it focuses mostly on the choir as they go to their regular jobs and then get ready to come to this. Now, there is this other backstory with Lou Graham's love interest. Yeah. Whew. If we're going percentages, I'm not giving this 100%. No. I might score this at a 78, but with the choir, no, maybe in the 80s. But the stuff with the, the woman getting out of bed and... Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, we'll talk about that as we go. But what you th- thoughts on the video? I agree with you um, that the the charm of the video is kind of having these unknown characters who you're not sure exactly what their role is, and they're like loose threads that, that eventually get woven into the story. I would like to say that the video ends in the most 80s way possible with a freeze frame of the embrace between Lou Graham and his, and his, uh, his love interest, which is just fantastic i give that a hundred percent it's almost like they hit pause on it at just any moment pause yeah. this is like <laughs> oh that's kind of an awkward way to pause it so there was some ambiguity in that whole love interest thing and correct me if i'm wrong but as i was watching it um you know you have this sense of um like for instance you see mick jones you know looking rather consternated <laughs> um concerned and and there's a shot of him through like these venetian blinds and then you see this this woman also through venetian blinds and it kind of connects them in an idea as oh are these the two people who are connected and then you see her having an argument on the phone and the person she's arguing with on the phone is the drummer dennis elliott if i'm not wrong and, and then lou is like so you know Maybe she's really uh, on intimate terms with the whole band. This is a groupie. Yeah. (laughs) 
<laughs> oh my goodness. The look on Lou Grant's face was one is he might be the one of the worst actors I've seen on video. <laughs> and so I was like, oh, it must be his sister. Because <laughs> that was the only way I could explain that look on his face. Like, oh, nice to see you too. Are you going to choose between the drummer or Mick? Because we got to know, because we got to lay down the next track. Yeah. <laughs> um, back to the acting of Lou Graham. Just the look on his face is the look of somebody who knows they're being filmed and can't help knowing that they're being filmed. So I'm surprised he doesn't do the sideways glance at the camera every once in a while, but he just looked so awkward. And Mick Jones just kind of looked genuinely miserable, which I think might be par for the course, I'm not sure, but yeah. he, he's, he looked kind of brooding. But Lou Graham just looked awkward. So are you saying that before the video was made that perhaps, perhaps, Lou Graham should have spent a weekend at the Art Garfunkel School of Acting? <laughs> yes, I was going to say... So, problem in the 80s is when they lip sync, Peter Cetera complained about this, is that you're in front of an audience and you can only move your mouth slightly and you're not doing anything. So, and he imitated it in an interview where it just went silent. And he goes, this is what it's like singing in the 80s. And he just, <laughs> he just did this lip sync thing. I'm like, oh yeah, that's it. So, these are people who need to sing. I watched Farm Aid from 1986, the performance of this song. Yeah. And it was incredible. And Lou Graham's face in the Live Aid thing in front of, I don't know, it looks like 100,000 people, Yeah, is so moving. And he feels the whole song that they should have just got him to sing and had someone sneak in and film him because he was just on. Um, there's a look on Mick's face when they get further on the video uh, no, there's just there's just a moment um, uh, where, you know, in the beginning of the video, Mick looks suitably troubled, but then once the choir's in and they're singing, there's a look of like really what is pure joy on his face, and it, it just struck me as being quite real. And, and I know that Mick has gotten slagged a little bit here because we're we're part of Lose Lose fan club, but. Um, you know, I mean, the anecdote that, that comes up with this all the time is, you know, about Mick's intent in, in how he wrote it and what it was supposed to signify. But everyone mentions the fact that they had done a couple of takes with the choir and that it was fine. It was okay. But, you know, Mick still felt like it was something missing. And uh, he describes, you know, they got in a circle held hands, said the Lord's Prayer, and he said his parents were there, and then he said the next take just, it just hit. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, that might be a little embellishment, who knows, but I thought the look on his face kind of reflected maybe what the sensation he was describing. The Venetian blinds had come down. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so... Tell me if this is not true, though. The, that you know, the in the video you get this this close up of uh, Rick Wills, the bass player. Yeah. And okay, so this is pure eighties. I th I looked at that image. I said, "Oh my gosh, it's Larry Bird has been crossbred with Judge Reinhold," and that's exactly <laughs> two prominent eighties personality molded into this one vision. You're 100% right. That's the first thing I thought. It was like, it looks like a shorter version of Larry Bird playing bass. <laughs> I just hadn't seen someone who... And Larry Bird always represented such an 80s figure to me. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, though that is on the money. I'm so glad you said it. Going to our traditional category i think he could yes i would i okay yes okay yes so the category is can michael bolton sing this frank says yes now the other category that's closely related is should michael bolton sing this i'm gonna say yes okay i have a capital n and a capital o there so i think we are at a standstill is that what we call it Stand off? A stand off. I'm standing still to stand off. I put Lou Graham is like a talisman 
to Michael Bolton's world destroying power. So Michael Bolton, because we had a category that says when would Michael Bolton destroy the universe by singing this song, but with Lou Graham singing there, Michael Bolton's powers to destroy the world would be rendered powerless. I would pay money to watch Michael Bolton sing this song. I feel like Lou is the Cronus to Michael Bolton Zeus. Okay, now you're up at like 112% that I don't understand. You're just saying things to confuse me. Wait, is Michael Bolton going to kill Lou Graham? Well, I wasn't going to go that far. Oh, okay. I'm just All thinking right. that he he proceeds. Like, I mean, Michael Bolton flows out of what Lou Graham creates as a possibility. Right. Okay. <laughs> Craig's eyes darting back and forth, wanting to say something about Lou Grant's loins, but holding back. Thank you. I feel that, but even with Michael Bolton singing this song, we got the same issue that Mariah has and everyone else, is that you're in trouble because Lou Graham has put his stamp on it and he can still sing this song. So I've seen him still sing it live and it's, he does, yeah. it's fine. So yes, Michael Bolton, I'm going to say should not. Frank says should. And uh, maybe one day we'll know. So do you know, this song reached number one in uh, January of uh, 85? February 2nd. Sorry, February 2nd. Sorry. <laughs> what am I reading here? Sorry. Could be UK. Yeah, January 15th in the UK, it was uh, the number one song in 1985. Do you know what song it replaced? No. And I really wish that perhaps the song was uh, released like, four or five weeks earlier so that is this in the uk in the uk so does it start with the words do they yes really yeah so that's why i wish the song was released earlier so do they know it's christmas would never make it to number one i was gonna say that's cruel because we don't want foreigner having another number two yeah (laughs) that's true yeah i have the u.s billboard yeah stuff here this was an incredible top 10 yeah it's insane. So, number one. So, this is February 2nd, 1985. I want to know what love is, foreigner. Mm-hmm. Number two, easy lover, Phil Collins, Philip Bailey. Number three, careless whisper by Wham. All of those are moving up. I think all of those are destined for, those two are destined for number so, one yeah. as well. Yeah. Number four, on the way down, you're the inspiration, Chicago. Number five, lover boy, Billy Ocean. Number six, boys of summer, Don, Don Henley. Henley. Number seven, Like a Virgin, Madonna. Number eight, I Would Die for You, Prince and the Revolution. Number nine, Method of Modern Love, Daryl Hall and John Oates. And finally, 10, Neutron Dance, Pointer Sisters. Wow. That's a Hall of Fame top 10 there. Basically, like the Academy Awards that were going to be coming out, I think, that year as well. Yeah, the, in 84. It's yeah. insane. The amount of music that was generated in 1984 that has still stood the test of time it's it, it endures really insane right? yeah can we talk about um i don't know if you came across this fact but it was the one fact in researching that i was kind of gobsmacked by and that was to find out foreigner has not been inducted into the rock and roll hall of fame that makes no sense to me that makes zero sense to me so there's songwriters hall of fame but not the rock and roll hall of fame Exactly. Still. Yeah, I don't get it. Like, to me, it's like if there is a classic rock group that you would just pick off the top of your head to say, of course, got to be in the hall, it would be Foreigner. Like five albums in a row in the top five in the Billboard uh, Top 200. Um, And as so many recognizable songs, all that. Um, I did hear an interview with Lou where he basically intimated that the reasons that they hadn't been inducted were political, you know, well, whatever. I, I think the selection committee is probably still waiting for them to resolve the hot-blooded, cold-as-ice uh, contradiction. <laughs> That's my guess. So my, my feeling about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is that they need their comeuppance. And so what I would propose is that there is a Hall of Fame for Halls of Fame. And that, you know, you could have the Football Hall of Fame and, uh, you know, pick whatever sport, and you would induct all these into being the greatest Halls of Fame, but not induct the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So they would know what it feels like to be ostracized. 
Well, you know what? I think Pete Rose would have something to say about this. Yeah. <laughs> Am I right, guys? Yeah. <laughs> Rock and Roll Hall of Fame disappointment, but congrats. We are inducting Foreigner into the Guilt-Free Hall of Fame. And random trivia. Uh, there, did you know there's a kind of a, a CanCon connection to the recording of this album? Um, so, while Agent Provocateur was being recorded... Um, a singer down the hall came in and was looking for some help because his backup singers all had come down with laryngitis. And uh, so Lou said, yeah, sure, I'll help you out. And that was none other than Brian Adams. So he ended up doing background vocals on Cuts Like a Knife and I think another four or five other tracks like that. On that album, and, yeah. yeah. That's fantastic. That that would be one of my favorite parts if I was in the music recording industry. Just the idea of that connectivity that can happen spontaneously. Just happen to be in the same space with somebody nearby and collaborating with people who just love music and they're really good at it. George Harrison wants to borrow a guitar and Traveling Wilburys Yeah, I was going to say, that's how the Traveling Wilburys were born, right? No, you can show. I want to thank Bruce Soderholm again for coming to our studio. We really appreciate the songs that you've brought to us, too. That the, Both the Jeff Healy and Foreigner are your ideas, and they're perfectly working with what we're about here. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's suited so well for, for Bill and Frank's guilt-free pleasures. And you brought up the analysis, I'd say, by 103%. <laughs> I apologize for the, uh, the the technicalities of poetry discussion there, but but I was asked, so I felt like I had to oblige. <laughs> anyway, no, it is uh, it is a treat to be here. I, I love being part of your discussion. Could do this all day long. And Bruce, we we really do appreciate that that you're here, and even though you're using words and terms that that I don't understand, um, just from a personal standpoint. This is a mountain that I must climb, even though it feels like the world is upon my shoulders. Thank you for listening to Bill and Frank's Guilt-Free Pleasures.